Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, fellow book lover, and welcome to the very first Book Off, a new literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and our aim here at Book Off Towers is to entertain you as well as introduce you to some new authors and books that you may want to explore yourself. The other reason is that for a supposedly well-read individual, there are many books I should have read and haven't, so I'm hoping these chats will force me to pick up some classics and some lost gems as well. Someone in the know said to me, your first podcast has to have a strong lineup. You need to grab people's attention. Well, I think I'd struggle to find a stronger duo than the two brilliant best-selling authors who are joining me for the inaugural book off. Paula Hawkins, John Boyne, Welcome to you both. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. And for being a part of this brand new podcast. You two know each other a bit, don't you? So this won't be two strangers going head to head. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, you've both come to talk about a book that you love. I've been quite specific not to say favourite book because that is is an impossible question. But we'll get to that main event of of pitting those two books at each other uh, later. First, I thought it'd be good to get an idea and, and find out a little bit about your reading habits and your tastes do, do you have a specific genre that you love reading or are you are you very much open to anything i'm open to anything and um, i read voraciously one of the good things about being able to write full-time is the freedom the time it gives you to write uh, to read all the time as well i tend to read mostly what's what's in the news you know what what's new what people are talking about in the books pages what's at the front of the bookshops i read a lot of debut authors I try to just kind of keep up and I guess like Paula you know we spend a lot of time at festivals and book tours and you meet other authors and it's always helpful if you have read their book if you're sharing a panel with them uh, something good to talk about so I kind of try to keep up with everything that's new and everything every sort of fourth or fifth book I try to go back maybe to a classic I've never read the one thing I don't do which I'm always telling myself I should do more of is read more non-fiction um, I never seem to get myself to non-fiction I don't know why it's mostly novels for me and Paula, was that the same for you? Quite, yeah, fairly similar. I also do tend to read things that are new. I do tend to read debuts. If you're in this world, you get sent a lot of debuts to look at. Yeah, literary fiction, I suppose, mostly. Obviously, I do read some crime fiction, but I tend to avoid it when I'm writing or when I'm trying to think about what I'm going to do next because I don't want to have other people's plots in my head. I do read a bit of non-fiction. Actually, one of my favourite books recently was a non-fiction book called The Red Parts by Maggie Nelson. So every now and again, but it, that is probably actually every 
sixth or seventh book. So yeah. again, it's one of those things that I should I should be doing more of. And when you're in the writing process of one of your own books, can you read at all? I mean, you mentioned crime fiction there, but can you still read other? Oh yeah, books? I do. I do like to keep on reading. I I think that you know you you still take inspiration. You still sort of remind yourself what you what it is you want to be doing, what it is you want to be doing well. So no, I I, I still want to, to read other things, yeah. even if sometimes it's a bit daunting because they're so much better. <laughs> <laughs> is that the same for you, John? Will you read while you're while you're in the writing phases? Well? Oh, definitely, because uh, I I'm writing. I think all the time, really. Mm. I don't take a lot of time off. So if I if I didn't, there'd be no time to read at all. And I think ever since I was a child, both reading and writing have been completely connected for me. And I don't feel like it influences me in any bad way. I think it really stirs up my imagination uh, as much as anything. And when you read something wonderful and you want to tell people about it, you want to write as well as that. Well, we've come together today to, to put two books against each other. Well, that's maybe not the, the best way of putting <laughs> it, but there, there, there's going to be two books discussed. You've both chosen one to talk about here. And I have the task of choosing which one I'm going to take home to read. Paula, what's your choice? I have chosen The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. And John? I've chosen The Go-Between by L.P. Hartley. OK, so before we flip the coin for who goes first, and then I'm going to set the timer, and I will set out the rules for you both. I do want to talk a, a little bit about your latest novels because you've both had books out this year. John, it, The Heart's Invisible Furies is yours, published in February, February I think, yep. wasn't it? Yeah, and it would be fair to say possibly one of your most ambitious novels yet? I, I think so. I think um, in terms of its scope, over 70 years between 1945 and 2015 in Ireland, it's a big sort of epic 600-pager, which I hope isn't too intimidating for readers. It's it's supposed to be a comic novel as well, which I'd never done before. But uh, yeah, I think it's ambitious. I But I think every time you set off to start a novel, it's um, the whole act of writing a novel is, is ambitious to begin with. But this is, like you say, you, your, your span of the time frame in Ireland, but then also injecting humour into what are some quite serious issues that you're looking at there as well. Yeah, well, I felt when I started writing it that because it's it's about the uh, the gradual change in Irish society and its uh, approach to sexuality to gay people over the years between the time when it was a criminal offence and 2015 when we became the first country to vote by public plebiscite for equal rights marriage, I wanted to see how a country changed in a relatively short space of time. When I was in um, Trinity College doing my undergrad years, it was still a criminal offence. And, you know, 20 years later, suddenly everybody's getting married to each other. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, we have such a conservative Catholic, it's been a, that type of country for centuries. So I started off thinking about that. But what if you were an old man who gets to, you know, this point in life and seeing that seeing how e not easy it is for young people but how, 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 how different it is and maybe what they'd missed out on themselves um, due to the way that the, the country was when, when they were young but I felt because I was going to go 70 years and I knew it was going to be a long novel I thought you know it just can't be too maudlin um, <laughs> so uh, I, I just started putting in the jokes and once I did I felt yeah this works and I think you, get a, you, you have an instinctive sense as a writer if you're going down the right path with something and I felt early on, yeah, this is the way. Just make it funny. But try to have, underneath the humour, try to have enough serious points to make as well. Yeah, well, you definitely managed that, I think. And there were points when I I was reading in cafes and things, just burst out laughing at some of the sort of the light. And, and you seem to do it in end of sentence, end of chapter lines. But there's one where um, an almost ludicrous thing happens where you think Cyril is not going to be able to get out of this situation now. He's, he's, he's a goner. And then... 
just this crazy uh, sort of flat line just hits you and it goes and now there and he's fine and he walked away for, do you know the yes. I'm talking about well the, well the nice thing about doing because I was doing it in um, seven year jumps it gave me a certain amount of freedom that at the end of every, every chapter and beginning the next one I didn't really have to sort, sort out all the problems I'd left behind me because he'd already moved on seven years so he probably sorted them out himself yeah. I could just move on to something else I could, I could leave it on the most ridiculous dramatic note but the thing I was thinking of a lot while I was writing it was Lucky Jim which uh, you know is one of my fa- favourite novels and is, an, is the type of novel I could have talked about here today actually and I was thinking about that that kind of bumbling creature who just no matter what he does it just all goes Tits up, can yeah. I say that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paula Into the Water was published in early May and um, is, is a very different book to The Girl on the Train in, in many ways. Was that your intention? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had a story I wanted to tell and there was never any question in my mind that I was going to try and do the same thing as The Girl on the Train. Um, so, I, yeah, again, I think it's also quite an ambitious tale that's told from many, many points of view. There are many mysteries in it. I mean, it centres on, on this relationship between sisters, but there are many other mysteries going on, some of which are solved, some of which aren't. But, yeah, it is a very different book to The Girl on the Train. Because in, in The Girl on the Train we have three narrators, and in this book it's 11. I think it's it? 11, yes. I How was that? Did that um, make it harder for It you? was very difficult to write. And the weird thing is that when I finished writing The Girl on the Train, I, d- I sort of thought to myself, God, I mustn't do multiple viewpoints again because it's too much like hard work. And then I did loads of them. So, But it was just the way, as I started writing it, I decided that this was the best way to tell the story. I liked the immediacy of first-person narration, but I needed the sort of whole chorus of voices because I've created this this community in this little town in the north of England, this fictional town where pretty much everyone is keeping a secret. So I wanted the reader to be privy to those secrets and in order to do so they had to be in, inside these characters' heads. I love the unsettling nature of the, the book, the spookiness of it. Mm which really captured me. Do you have an interest in in the supernatural? I liked the sort of creepy ghost-like atmosphere without actually having the ghosts. So it's a sort of people... it's, It's people's imaginations running away with them, which is, I think... I mean, I'm the kind of person, if I'm alone in a house, like out in the the wilderness somewhere I will be afraid without really knowing what it is that I'm afraid of it's just that sort of weird sense that there might be something else there even though I don't believe in that something else so it's that I was trying to build that kind of creepy gothic atmosphere where your sort of your your imagination is running away with you yeah you wrote a ghost story didn't you John I did yes a few years ago this house is haunted about five or six years ago narrated by a woman it's the only novel I've written which is narrated by a woman did you feel you wanted to sort of Get that that creepiness that yeah. That I wanted to take up. all the, those those ideas from you know Henry James and Turn of the Screw and Emmore James as well and the the kind of big house governess scary children lots of fog um, <laughs> take take all the obvious things and then try to put some kind of contemporary twist on it and my my twist was to have rather than a, a heroine who was going to be frightened at every bump in the night that she was going to be a force of nature she was going to be this really strong woman who didn't need a, a man to solve it for her and actually only a, a few days ago I was doing an event at the Dublin Writers Festival and a woman came up to me after it and, she, and her question to me was do you not like girls or something <laughs> and I was like what and she said because all your books particularly the books for young people they don't they, they never have any girls in them and I, was, and I was like well there is one that's narrated <laughs> by a girl and you know but there's perhaps something in these slightly spooky unsettling books 
that we get a, a strange pleasure from reading, mm. like watching those horror films or ghost films, you know. Yeah, I think so. I think it, it probably takes us back to childhood, to reading fairy stories, and mm. yeah, and then to teenagerhood and watching loads of horror movies, which I did, and and I hate horror movies, but I was kind of forced into it by, by a friend, and those are the sorts of things that set your imagination running, and and there is a thrill in that. Because there were point, I I made a point of reading yours were at at night. Mm-hmm. Um, on my own, on occasions <laughs> in a caravan in Ireland, actually. The other, and um, perfect. It, it, I did. It, I think I did it on purpose. Yeah. Because I wanted that sort of. No, I'm not. I can't go on anymore. I'm going to put the book down <laughs> and put the telly on or something to get away from it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, let's turn to the books that you've brought to talk about then. We mentioned them briefly earlier, but this is this is the point in the podcast where you get to sell me and the listeners a book that you absolutely love, okay? So it could be a book that means something to you, that inspired you. It could be a classic, could be quite new, could be non-fiction, fiction. It's just something that you think everyone should read. So I'm going to flip a coin, if I've got one in here, to <laughs> see who's going to go first or second. Uh, Paula, do you want to call it Heads or Tails? Okay, heads, please. Heads for you, all right. <clears throat> heads it is. Do you want to go first or second? Um, I'll go first. Okay. Um, and the idea being that you get three minutes, and I've got this here, look, this is, a, this is a prop to tell you when they're up. You don't have to use all three, but when we reach three, I'm going to stop you. Okay. okay. So tell us about this book and why you think we should read it. I have picked The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, which I studied for A-Level many, many years ago, and it was the first properly feminist book that I remember reading, but that's not why I'm saying that you ought to read it. There are many reasons for you to read it, and not just because it's on telly either. It is the creation of a wholly believable dystopian world. Margaret Atwood calls her work um, speculative fiction rather than science fiction. And in this world that she's created, which is where a religious sect has overthrown the US government and introduced this totalitarian regime, all the things that she is citing, all the ways in which women's bodies are controlled, have actually occurred somewhere in the world at some point. Or they may be taken from the Bible or what have you. But it's a completely believable, um, believable world. 
read it because it is relevant. It's feeling very, very fresh at the moment. It was written in um, sort of 83, 84 and published in 85, but it is feeling particularly relevant at the moment. One of the signs in the, the Women's March on Washington in, in January was make Margaret Atwood fiction again. Um, but obviously Donald Trump's America is not the only place where, where women's reproductive rights are being sort of discussed and controlled and that sort of thing. Obviously there's plenty of places in the world in which women's power over their own bodies is is still contested and is still, you know, a subject of, of, of male debate. It's also just a cracking story. It's got this amazing protagonist, Offred, who is this... I really like her because she's not a gung-ho, fearless heroine. She's relatable. She's the kind of woman we could imagine ourselves being if we were, were thrown into this world and we were... We might rebel a little bit. She rebels in small ways. She she sort of covets things. She she has an affair. So she's the, she's the sort of character that you can you can completely go through this hell with, and feel like you would you perhaps might behave the same way as she did. I think it just should be read because Margaret Atwood is one of our greatest living writers. She's an amazing writer. She's written about I think it's something like sixty books, and she writes novels and plays and short stories and the whole lot and she's a wonderful person to read and read it also for the ending because it's an it's an amazing ending particularly if you're a, a, fa- a fan of a sort of well a certain sort of fiction I won't tell you what the ending is but um, it's worth it just for that perfect you did it within time as well ten seconds left there that was Ooh. that was pretty <laughs> swift and a fantastic pitch I must say yes indeed well done that was great John how are you feeling I'm ready to go. You ready? Yep. You're yep. rock and ready. Just Let's remind us of the book you're going to you're going to talk about. Uh, the Go Between by L. P. Hartley. All right. The timer is on. Over to you, John. Okay. Well, The Go Between, um, I think, is one of those books that people often read when they're quite young. Um, I was talking to a colleague earlier who, whose son was reading it for A levels. It's like the catcher in the rye in that way. I didn't read it when I was young. I read it for the first time only about three years ago on the recommendation of a friend. And it was one of those classics I mentioned that I go back to, you know, that I've never read. And it had the most extraordinary effect on me when I read it. I've always liked books about kids who are on their own in the world. When I was a kid myself, they were the books I liked, where no adults were present. Um, That's what I write myself when I write for young people. And this book, The Go-Between, is very much about that. There's a young boy, Leo Colston. He's poor. He goes to stay with his much wealthier friend, Marcus Maudsley, uh, for a summer at their house in Norfolk in around, I think it's like the 1910s or so. And it's the, the... the class society thing comes up a lot between them. The poor boy going to stay with the rich boy. Um, there's nobody around that really pays any attention to them. The parents kind of ignore them. But Marcus gets sick and Leo then is left entirely on his own. And he becomes this go-between. He sends these letters between Marcus's older sister, Marion, and the farmer next door, Ted. Now, again, there's a class problem there because Marion and Ted are having an affair and this would be frowned upon by everybody. But Marcus, or Leo, is in love, has fallen in love for the first time. He's only 12, 13 years old. And he's fallen in love for the first time with Marion and doesn't realise that he's being used as this go-between. And the reason that I think people should read this is because it's the heartbreaking elements of this book. It's when Leo realises what's happening and how he's been used, that Marion doesn't love him, she loves somebody else, and that she would never even think of him in that way because he's just a small boy and she's 19 or 20. And it has this incredibly destructive element in it. Um, Leo tells this story from adulthood. He's in his 60s or 70s. He's looking back in this very nostalgic way to his childhood and how one single incident, one terrible moment, something that he sees, 
destroys the rest of his life. I'm not making it sound very cheerful. I get that. Um, but it's just incredibly moving. And I like books that have a real emotional effect on me. If they're meant to make me cry, I want to cry. If they're meant to make me laugh, I want to laugh. And this book will just, it will just drain you. It just will make you so sad. Um, it has this, it's so nostalgic. It also has that, most, one of the most famous opening lines in literature. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And that just sets you up, you know, for, um, for this wonderful story that is to come. It's not sentimental in any way, I think, um, although there is a lot of sentiment in the book. It's not slushy. It doesn't manipulate the reader. Um, and it's not very cheerful towards the end. But, oh, I see the bell coming out. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the five or six books in my life that has just moved me to tears. Got there in the end. Brilliant. Wow, fantastic that as well. Fantastic. Blimey. I love the fact that you brought quite a few pages in, Paula, yes. and, and, and John has opted for a sort of scrap of folded, <laughs> folded <laughs> newspaper or something. He doesn't that. need notes. <laughs> Can I just say about, my, about The Handmaid's Tale? Because I remember reading that. I'm a huge Mark and Atwood fan. Mm. And I went through a period when I was sort of in my early 30s where I went through basically all of Mark and Atwood's books. And I think the first one I read, though, was The Handmaid's Tale, uh, because that's one of the most famous. And then I read Alias Grace, mm. which I absolutely adored. That's right up my street, yeah, Alias yeah. Grace. The subject matter, the historical elements, loved it. Um, and I've always been a massive Margaret Atwood fan. I'm not so crazy about some of the later speculative fiction novels. I've never been that kind of a reader, you know, the speculative mm-hmm. fiction guy. Um, I prefer the kind of Robert Bride, Cat's Eye, Alias yeah. Grace type novel, um, to be honest. Mm. And obviously you're a fan. Now, having heard John's pitch, Paula, would you want to read The Go-Between? I do, definitely. I have it. I bought it when I heard that we were doing this. Mm. And I was um, ashamed that I hadn't already read it. But I have it. And I feel now, when you were telling, telling the, giving your intro, that I think I must have seen it on TV. There, the was, a, there was a movie, Alan yeah. Bates and Julie Christie, I think in I think I must have seen 71. it at some point because it's familiar to yeah. me without having... I know, I have it. It's on my desk. It's on my to-be-read list. And it's been adapted. To, I think it's a play as well. And a, yeah, and possibly. Yeah. Uh, I think it has. I think it's been adapted in, in many different forms. Because it was published in 53 or something, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. But it's, I, it's exactly the sort of thing I love, that one one um, inc- one mistake, one thing you do wrong that, that throws your whole Shatters life. Your whole life. Yes, that sounds yeah. wonderful. <laughs> and Paula, are you, a, are you a Hugh Jackwood fan as well? Have you have you sort of read most of I've them? I've read quite anyway? a few of them, yeah. 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 Alias Grace would have been my other favourite. But this mm. one, I think, um, The Hamming's Hell is the one that had this huge impact on me because I just, I'd never read... A, a feminist novel like this and it just does feel very fresh today it certainly does yeah and that's oh, that's what I'm struggling with now you see I've got do I want to be in just complete complete bits or do I want to read something that's <laughs> galvanised to action <laughs> something that's going to really you know that's going to resonate with today and oh. actually you know just on, on a side note I was in Sydney um, a few months ago and I was in a second hand bookshop and I found a first edition hardback of The Go-Between oh wow and strangely enough only the day before I had been Google imaging the the first edition cover because of something I was writing and I wanted to have the character be reading that book and so I needed to look up what the the jacket looked Mm. like and by pure coincidence the next day I found it and it was like it was only about $60 and I did say it to the bookseller I said you know are you sure like this is the first edition and she was like yeah yeah $60 and I bought it and took it home and I'm not like a big first edition collector that's not I've never really been into that but I, I, I couldn't pass that one up 
That's I feel like I'm really now trying to win this, but I'm not. <laughs> it's just something interesting. It's just something interesting about the book. <laughs> I just I love first editions though. I've I've I, I'm I'm the sort of person who goes and browses, you know, those antique bookshops and those oh, specialist right. books. Oh yeah, I just I've got quite a thing about them. I don't know. But you know, you what's, what, you what can sell them you, your first edition. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's your, your your best one that you have? Like the one that you're most proud of? Well, it's a, it's a children's book called The Bellmaker. Um, by Brian Jacks because oh. that was the book that got me to, into reading for pleasure. Oh, that's lovely! And it's you know it's I bought it as a first edition, so it it exists as a as the one. It's the one that oh, I yeah. actually bought when it came out. Yeah, um, nice. But there are other treasured ones. You know, I've got a first edition Dahl and some other some other pretty good, pretty good oh, ones. But, yeah. I just love the look of. The, I think yeah. I think there's something about the look of those beautiful. First edition hardbacks and how the covers change and things yeah. and the, mm. the age in them and stuff. You know, I've got a, I've got a beautiful hardback edition of um, A Widow for One Year by John Irving, uh, one of my favourite writers, and it's a limited edition with a different jacket, and the the sides of the pages are all black, and the pages themselves feel quite thick, yeah. and it's got yeah. a ribbon on it and it's signed, and I think there's oh, only about a couple of hundred of them, and it's it's just beautiful. I take yeah. it out sometimes and just look at it. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the thing. They are be- they're beautiful things. Those mm. some of those special yeah. ones. Mm. I'm j- I'm obviously wittering on because I don't want to have to make the decision now. But um, <sighs> okay. So the go between by L. P. Hartley, Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, and based on those both brilliant pictures, I am going to take home with me the Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> I'm going to take the Handmaid's Tale. Thank you. Uh, because, because, <laughs> if I have to give England it a justification, Ireland nil. <laughs> because I feel like something written in in eighty three, eighty four, and published in eighty five, which is when I was born, and being and resonating yeah. now, yeah. <laughs> and I think the issue is important, and the fact that John then talked the book up and Margaret Atwood up afterwards yeah. is just has given me. Uh, you know, I think anyway. John actually did the better pitch. That was I am mistake. going to, I am going to go <laughs> and read um, the Go Between. But so the truth is, I'm probably going to go and read both of them. Yeah, yeah, they're both brilliant books, and uh, and you have made me really want to read both of them. So thank you for for bringing those to our attention. They're older books, obviously. What are you both reading at the moment? A particular author that you're enjoying? Or I, I've just started reading Sugar Money, which is um, the third novel by Jane Harris, who readers might know from The Observations and Gillespie and I, which were two fantastic novels. Um, it's an advanced copy I was lucky enough to get. It's coming out in October. Um, I just started it earlier today, actually, and I'm about 70, 80 pages in, and it's just wonderful. It's written in this almost Creole-like language, narrated by a sort of an 11-year-old boy um, on a boat going to a slave colony to kidnap slaves. And I'm just loving it. Jane Harris is a wonderful novelist. That sounds great. That's coming out later in the year, is it? Yes, October. Yeah. I am reading, but this is not a new book, I'm reading the penultimate Armistead Morpin book, uh, Tales of the City, Armistead Morpin, mm. I mean, which for some reason I'd missed out. I hadn't realised that I'd missed one in the series, but I love his books. And so it's Marianne and Autumn, mm. um, which will be the last one of those, which is going to make me very sad. You're going to have to treasure that one. You're trying yes. to save. Do you do that? Like I just try and save a book. Save, when I know yeah, there are anymore. some where you're, you're, you realise that you're too close to the end and you're not ready to for it to, to be over yet. <laughs> not quite ready to part <laughs> with the, the characters and the writing. And yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for bringing your your books to us and best of luck with your two latest novels. The Hearts Invisible Furies and Into the Water are both out now, of course, published by Double Day. Paula John. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.